Welcome to the M&A Cornercast, a podcast focused on the world of mergers and acquisitions. Helping inform the business owners and advisors we work with every day. I'm your host, Chuck Dallas. I have more than 10 years of experience with mergers and acquisitions, both from a corporate perspective and as an outside advisor. Today, we welcome Terry Gerbers to the M&A Cornercast. Terry is the president of Gerbers Law Service Corp. in Green Bay and a practicing commercial and real estate attorney. Terry, nice to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Well, great, great. Well, you know, why don't we start out, Terry? Uh, Can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your background? I received my Bachelor of Business Administration from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater and my Juris Doctorate degree from Marquette University. As you have indicated, I am the president of Gerber's Law. Our firm practices in the areas of business and estate planning, business advising, M&A, real estate, and banking. I have been in practice now for about 27 years and have focused on the business advising portion of our practice, along with business and real estate transactions, primarily in the M&A arena. We represent businesses in the low to middle market, usually under $100 million in enterprise value. While most of our clients are located in Wisconsin and the neighboring states, we have represented clients in M&A transactions in many other states as well. Well, Terry, you've you've had quite a bit of experience advising business owners in all sorts of situations, it sounds like, M&A related or otherwise. So what are the legal issues that a business owner should be preparing for as they start the sale process? Well, as they're starting the sales process, I would say first and foremost, ensure that all your corporate documents and records are organized that they're complete and that they're up to date. Whether you're contemplating a stock sale or an asset sale, a prospective purchaser will be reviewing those records to ensure that all actions that have been taken on behalf of your company or your corporation have been properly authorized and that they were properly taken. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon that I'm retained by a seller and discover that corporate records are out of date or incomplete. And it's not anything that's too difficult to deal with. We assist in getting those records up to date before a seller takes their business to market. If you have an unorganized business, it's going to be less attractive to a prospective purchaser as it's going to create doubt in that purchaser's mind as to whether the company is organized and conducting its business, as well as to whether or not all actions that the company has taken were properly authorized. And I would say that kind of leads me to a second point is just as we want to ensure that the company has authorized all of its actions to date, Another issue that comes up is ensuring that their contracts are in place. Whether your contracts are with your employees, outside contractors, customers, suppliers, or whatever it may be, prospective purchasers are going to want to see those contracts. They're going to want to see that they're strong. For example, employment agreements that restrict an employee's ability to leave and compete with the corporation's business gives prospective purchasers a sense of security that not only will that employee stick around, But it's also unlikely that employee is going to breach the contract and compete with the business that the buyer is looking to purchase. Similarly, customers and suppliers that have standing agreements, or we oftentimes call master agreements, give prospective purchasers a greater comfort or confidence that your sales with those customers will continue. They'll be recurring. They'll continue probably at the same pace that you have represented in the figures and the historical sales that you provide to that purchaser. Similarly, if you have suppliers that have contracts or on still on ongoing commitments to supply materials to you, 
the fact that that will be in place after sale gives the prospective purchaser comfort that those sales will continue at the same price or the purchases will continue at the same price and they won't be gouged at a greater price subsequent to their acquiring the business. Unfortunately, not all customers or suppliers will agree to master agreements and prefer one-time purchase orders. However, a seller should have the agreements in place whenever possible because if your talent, your customers or suppliers are not closely tied to your corporation, prospective purchasers will have less interest in your business than if those agreements had been in place. Sure. The third issue that it kind of comes to mind, albeit maybe not a great legal concern, but more of a practical concern, is when preparing for the sale of your business, we have to take a look at the working capital. This is oftentimes overlooked by sellers. When a prospective buyer is looking to purchase a business, they almost always want working capital included in the purchase price. Working capital is your current assets, usually other than cash, such as your accounts receivable, inventory, and prepaid expenses, less your current liabilities, which are your accounts or trade payables, your payroll liabilities, and accrued taxes. Many successful businesses tend to relax their efforts to collect outstanding receivables and they'll buy excess inventory when it's on sale because they're not cash strapped. Conversely, they tend to pay all their liabilities on time because they have the cash available to do so. The problem with that approach is that it artificially increases the working capital the company needs to operate. Because the buyers will seek to have an average of the prior 12 months working capital included in the sale, the result is that the seller is actually giving up more working capital, or put better, giving up more of the purchase price than they otherwise would have to. To the extent practical, you know, without jeopardizing or affecting operations, a seller would be well advised to be operating their business in a little leaner fashion or what they ordinarily would have if they didn't have a lot of cash on hand leading up to this sale, at least a year before the sale, in fact, or it can adversely affect the net amount the seller receives. Well, that's good advice, Terry. Uh, you know, you're exactly right. Uh, some owners are not thinking about selling. So that's really not on top of their mind. And, and it's some of those type of efficiencies that makes your business a little bit more attractive to buyers. Sure does. I mean, at the end of the day, the buyer wants to ensure that what they're acquiring is exactly what you have represented to them. And uh, if you're if you're operating that business in a, a leaner fashion, they're still going to have their money that they need to operate. Uh, the working capital will be sufficient versus if you are putting a lot of inventory on the books and holding off with your collections, but yet paying your bills on time, uh, then you're going to artificially increase that working capital amount. Right. Or back when I was a buyer, I'd cherry pick your accounts receivable. I wouldn't want the past due headaches. I would only take your, your very good accounts. So, but Terry, I, I'm going to go back. Your very first issue that you talked about there, it really is dealing with board minutes, isn't it? I mean, some, some business owners don't feel the need that they need to have a formal corporate meeting and keep track of minutes, but that is a, a crucial piece on this, isn't it, as they get ready to sell? It is, Chuck. It is a very crucial piece that the seller maintains regular minutes, maintains regular records and resolutions to make sure that the company is properly authorized and acting as a legitimate corporation. I can tell you that oftentimes, if there's ever a lawsuit brought against the company, the plaintiff in that lawsuit will oftentimes ask for the corporate records of the organization to ensure that the company is operating independently and is not an alter ego of the seller. 
if uh, the company is not operating as a legitimate corporation and it's not authorizing its actions from time to time, it's very possible that the sellers could be liable for liabilities that would otherwise be corporate liabilities. It's called piercing the corporate veil. So when we have a situation where, where sellers are not operating under legitimate guise of the company and doing things haphazardly, that oftentimes can create liabilities even before a sale. Right. Yeah. No, I, I'm glad you point that out. I, I mention that to clients that I work with all the time on the accounting and tax side that, you know, it is important. Yes, you, you have an S-Corp or an LLC that's out there that's formed, but to have some minutes on a regular basis is just kind of crucial, as you say, for, for that legal liability standpoint and to show that things have been authorized for purchases. Um, in IRS audits, it's one of the first things they ask for is your corporate minutes. So it's good to have that. Sure is. It's important that those corporate records be maintained regularly. As I indicated, you know, from time to time, we run across situations where they're not regularly updated. And that's something we want to have in place before you take that business to market, because we want to make that entity look as organized and as well-structured and authorize its actions before we even go to sale. Yep. Well, very good advice. Great. Terry, what's generally involved in a strong due diligence process? Well, obviously, there's a lot involved with the due diligence process, and a seller can expect that the buyer is going to be sophisticated and will demand all relevant information that relates to the business. It's probably not their first acquisition in most cases. A seller must be prepared to deliver information that is that's going to be requested by the buyer and do so in a relatively quick and timely fashion. But if you don't do that, we're going to have a seller that either feels as though that you're unorganized, that you don't know what you, you have for sale, you don't know what your business is doing, or the buyer may get cold feet and move on to another a transaction that they're looking at. And the due diligence process can be rather tedious. And, and let's face it, it's something that causes seller fatigue. Sellers will oftentimes feel as though they're being diverted from operating the company and running their business and being profitable. This is why I always suggest to sellers before they even take their business to market, start preparing the information so that you have a little bit of time to do so. If you do not start this process early, it will become very burdensome. And even before you go to market, it's important that you get some of the basic information together. And what that information will include almost uniformly is going to include financial statements and tax returns probably for the last three to five years. Uh, this information will be used by the prospective buyer to confirm any adjustments that you've made to EBITDA in determining the purchase price that the purchaser is willing to pay. It will also be used to determine the amount of working capital that will be necessary for the business to operate. As we talked earlier, uh, the working capital is a major component of what is negotiated in the, in the purchase and sale contract. So we want to make sure that that information is available. You're expected to be asked to provide your historical sales information. I always advise sellers, by the way, when it comes to historical sales information to identify customers by number or by letter and not by name. Uh, the last thing you want is to be sitting in a courtroom having to prove that a buyer walked away from the transaction, used information they obtained in due diligence to acquire a customer, steal a customer from you, and, and begin to work with that customer. So it's important that when you are providing that information that you do so without identifying the customer by name. Something that we've done uh, with uh, many transactions recently is 
we'll tell the buyer that, listen, we, we'll provide customer information by letter or by number. But if you want to talk to our specific customers, we will only let you do so after all contingencies have been satisfied. Now, some buyers don't want to do that. They want to make sure that we have strong customer relationships, but we don't want, one, we don't want contact directly between the the prospective purchaser, we don't know whether or not they're going to buy the business yet, and our customer. And secondarily, we don't want our customers knowing that we're thinking about selling our business. So what we'll do is we'll oftentimes retain a third-party marketing firm. That marketing firm can be utilized to reach out to our customers and just ask some more non-threatening questions, such as, are you happy with the seller? How long has your relationship been with the seller? What are your annual purchases? Do you believe that those purchases will continue in the future? Is there any complaints that you have about the level of service, the timely delivery of product, things like that, information that can be readily available through this third party as opposed to letting the seller go get it directly, excuse me, the purchaser to go get it directly. So number one, you're telling the purchaser, I'll give you the information, but I'm not going to give you the actual clients. And number two, your your customer base feels as though it's it's as if um, you're just making a normal marketing inquiry of your customers to make sure that they're happy and content and that they're not expecting any changes in your business. So we find that's a really good way of dealing with notifying the buyer of your customer base. No, great point. It, you know, this is such a crucial piece, isn't it, Terry? A uh, purchaser may be excited or emotional about uh, buying this business, but you really don't want to look past the due diligence process. <laughs> yeah, it looks all right to me. Uh, let's sign the papers. Uh, it's it, This is really your protection. It is. It protects your, your client base. And the historical sales information is going to be information that the purchaser is going to want to review. Some other things that you can expect to have to deliver through the due diligence process will be any licenses or permits that are necessary to operate the business because if those licenses and permits either have to be obtained by the buyer because they're not assignable. The buyer is going to want to get working on that. If they are assignable, we'll have to find out the process for assigning those permits and licenses to the purchaser. We'll want to know what the purchaser is going to want to know whether or not you've had any warranty claims, insurance claims, or if there's any lawsuits pending or threatened that could expose the purchaser post-closing to some type of liability. They're going to want to see your insurance policies. Uh, they're going to want an employee role that includes their position, the salary, their tenure with the company, and any agreements those employees may have with the company. Copies of any employment benefit plans, copies of any employee handbook. Again, the buyer is going to want to see whether or not they want to continue with those plans and policies or if they want to implement their own. Uh, any type of employee claims that may exist, uh, they're going to want to know about those. If there's any environmental issues or any regulatory issues that have come uh, to the seller's knowledge, the buyer is going to want that information. All material contracts are going to be required. So that's uh, there's a lot of different things, software, licensing agreements, any intellectual property. As you can see, there's a lot oh, of information. So the sooner you get started, the better. No, you're you're exactly right. And at times, it's a hassle to put all that together, but it is crucial as you go through this process. So Terry, now we have a, a buyer or seller that, that want to move forward. What's critical to a strong purchase agreement? as you move forward? Well, there's a lot of aspects that are critical to a strong purchase agreement, including the you know when we're going to close, the strength of the, the purchaser's financials and so forth. But I find that one of the most critical parts of the purchase agreement is the representations and warranties that the seller has to make to the buyer. These provisions are what form the basis of wholesale claims by the buyer against the seller. Not only will a, a prospective 
buy or review all aspects of your business, but they're going to demand that you represent and warrant certain conditions of that business. This will include such things as warranting that all activities of the business were properly taken, that all representations you made in due diligence were true and correct, that all taxes have been paid, that the company owns the assets that the buyer is buying. And, and from the seller's perspective, we want to try to limit that exposure. To do so, whenever possible, we'll limit the seller's representations to what they actually know or should know. There's going to be certain conditions that the buyer simply will not take that as a final representation. In other words, they will ask you to warrant certain conditions. And the difference is between a representation and warranty is that a representation is usually what you know or what you should know. A warranty is different in the sense that it doesn't matter whether you knew or should have known. You are warranting that particular fact or condition as being true or accurate. And again, there's some issues that the buyer simply will require you to warrant. And that's going to include such things as whether or not the company has been properly organized, whether or not the company has complied with all applicable laws and ordinances, whether the company owns its assets that, are, that the buyer is purchasing, whether it's paid all of its taxes. Those are things that are just so elementary that the buyer is going to require that you make a warranty as opposed to a representation. Those are typically what we call fundamental representations. So that's something that the buyer is, is looking at. Along those same lines, Chuck, we'll also, as part of the contract itself, when we represent the seller, we're going to try to limit the seller's exposure to those representation and warranty claims by negotiating tipping baskets and, and caps or INs on those types of indemnity claims. No, I, that's that's great point. And we, we talked about that in one of our past uh, podcasts when, when we had Leroy from, from Cornerstone on about the importance of that and, and what it means to the transaction. So that's a great point. Well, what it really means is that basically you try to negotiate those amounts down. And what we like to try to keep some type of threshold before any claim can be advanced. Usually like 1% of the purchase price is quite common to ensure that if there's a minuscule or a minor claim, the purchaser isn't going to be automatically threatening to sue the seller because there's been a breach. And along the same lines, we want to cap that amount. If we have a claim that arises post-closing for something that occurred prior to closing that either is uninsured or not sufficiently insured, we don't want to jeopardize the entire purchase price. So we'll typically negotiate in advance some fraction of the purchase price as being the high end that the purchaser can make a claim against the seller for. And, and, and again, there are these fundamental representations and in cases of fraud, the seller is going to be on the hook and they should be on the hook for those types of things because they know better. But it's nice when we can put the seller's mind at ease by saying, listen, even if a claim arises, here's the most that you're going to have to pay, even if it's not covered by insurance. And usually, you know, we find out during the due diligence process what those tipping baskets and what those caps will be set at. Because if we have a relatively clean company and the company's been operating and keeping good records and doesn't have a lot of warranty claims, doesn't have a lot of lawsuits, doesn't have a lot of employee disputes, customer disputes, you know, we're going to be able to put that tipping basket a little bit higher, meaning that there'll be a larger threshold before any claim can be made. And we'll put that cap a little bit lower. So at the end of the day, the seller's at risk amount is going to be significantly less. Good point. Yeah. It's definitely a crucial piece that needs to be reviewed as you go through the sale process. 
It does. And I think one thing that sellers need to keep in mind and sellers advisors is that even when you have no seller note involved, the buyer is going to want to escrow a portion of the purchase price for a period of time, typically one to three years, to assist with getting the record book up to date and even some of the transactional things such as promissory notes and mortgages that are coming back. I think that keeps the relationship between the seller and the attorney and in good standing. You know, I, I want to thank our guest, Terry Gerbers of Gerbers Law in Green Bay, Wisconsin, for being here today and sharing his experiences and his stories as an attorney in the M&A world. So thank you very much, Terry. Thank you for tuning in to the M&A Cornercast. Hopefully we gave you some insight into the world of mergers and acquisitions. We'll see you back again next Thursday with a brand new episode.